Nick and Matt Jackson. You're listening to the Work Shoot Wrestling Podcast. Too sweet. Suck it. And welcome to an all-new episode of the Work Shoot Wrestling Podcast with Corey Richmond, joined by Jason Brooks. And we also have a special guest with us, New York Times bestselling writer, Keith Greenberg. Keith, welcome to the program. And before we start, I just want to say a special thank you to a friend of both of ours, Larry Fry, for uh, bringing your name to me. And uh, how are you doing today, Keith? I'm doing great. And it was, uh, it was wonderful to run into Larry a few weeks ago, who I, you know, was in my sister's class growing up. So here it is all these years later. And what comes up? The world of professional wrestling. And uh, the book that you're, you're here to talk about today, and of course, a lot of other things in your career, is Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, which you can get at Amazon.com, and I'm sure a lot of other places where you pick up books from uh, ECW Press. Uh, Keith, I guess starting right off the bat, what made you decide to write about indie wrestling? Was it the birth of AEW? Was it, 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 it preceded AEW. In fact, I was quite fortunate that AEW was invented uh, in the course of my writing this book. Um, what happened was, was at WrestleMania 34 in New Orleans. Um, I was there with a, with a group of friends and uh, the guys from Inside the Ropes that do the, the uh, traveling shows in the UK. And I eventually started the magazine that I'm now writing for, Inside the Ropes Wrestling Magazine. I was there with them. And as we were walking around Bourbon Street, we were noticing an inordinate amount of Bullet Club shirts. And we were thinking, wow, that's pretty interesting. You know, like here, WWE has brought everybody together. But I remember there was a big Ring of Honor show the night, the same night as NXT TakeOver. You know, there were a bunch of indie shows. These guys are from England and Ireland and Scotland. And, you know, a number of the British promotions were there. Uh, th there was a lot of uh, British and Irish and Scottish talent there. And it's like, but the um, prevalence of Bullet Club shirts made me feel there is something going on that is beyond WWE at this point. The indies have risen to a certain level that I think uh, a book uh, 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 dedicated solely to the indies with all this momentum going can stand on its own. It's no longer so fringe that you have a hundred or so indie fans buying the book. And, uh, you know, I spoke to Michael Holmes, my executive editor about that. And when I ran it by him, he said, I had the same observation, but you just framed that in a way that made me think, yeah, you know, let's do a book. So, uh, you know, I waited for their contract. Uh, they offered me something. I asked for a little more, and they eventually <laughs> gave me a little bit more. <laughs> then I wrote yeah. the book. So, Keith, how did it? Um, how did your process? And I'm going to ask you about your process of researching, probably more than once. But your process in coming up with the ideas for the book, or like you know, researching people, or like how did you start the idea of this book? Well, I said, well, I have to. I, I mean, obviously, I had a very rough outline in mind. Yeah. I knew that outlaw wrestling had existed long before what became known as indie wrestling. And outlaw wrestling, you know, I in the book, I trace it back to the early 60s when uh, Jim Crockett Sr. tried to run opposition to Vincent James McMahon out of Sunnyside Gardens in Queens. Uh, after Antonina Rocca, who was, you know, the headliner of the 50s and early 60s, parted ways with the establishment. And, uh, you know, they were trying to build uh, an outlaw promotion, basically, around Antonina Rocca in the Bruno San Martino era. And they were quite unsuccessful. Um, and uh, then there was, a, when I was a teenager, there was the IWA, which was a uh, trying to be a national promotion and they couldn't get into Madison Square Garden. So, so they would um, have their matches at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, uh, where the Brooklyn Dodgers would play several games a year, but they had good talent. 
talent. I mean, they had Ivan Koloff, a former WWF champion. They had Tex McKenzie. They had Ernie the Cat Lad. They had Thunderbolt Patterson. Um, you know, big names. And uh, Mil Mosperus was their champion, uh, Dick the Bulldog Brower. So, um, you know, this had always existed, that there were, were always promotions that were trying to offer an alternative. Not all of them wanted to compete neck and neck with the established promotion, but they'd always been there. And I guess the most famous outlaw promotion of all time was ECW. And um, eventually the terminology changed. It went from being outlaw to being indie. And um, indie for a long time meant recent stars who'd been released from WCW or WWF. And, uh, you know, th there wasn't anything fresh about it other than you had some up-and-comers, some training school guys, and one or two big stars. And uh, uh, what eventually occurred was there were guys who came up on the indies and they established relationships with the fans and they established followings all their own. I remember when I spoke to Marco Stunt in the course of researching this book, he had never really followed WWE. He lived in Mississippi and he was an indie fan. And by indie, I'm talking about guys like Adam Cole and guys like, um, you know, Kevin Steen, a.k.a. Kevin Owens and Elton Erico, who's now Sami Zayn. You know, and Sami Zayn, I'm doing another book now about wrestling in the time of COVID-19. So I'm learning things about Sami Zayn when he was El Generico. There was a tour he did of Scandinavia at one point and, um, you know, cultivated hundreds, if not thousands of fans over there. But these guys developed international followings to the point where, you know, Ring of Honor could run a packed card and it could compete with any WWE card. And pro wrestling gorilla PWG in L.A. was drawing the best indie wrestlers from all over the world. And, you know, there were wrestlers who had um, the they demanded when they worked for Ring of Honor that it be written into their contract that they'd have permission to work for PWG. And, you know, I was fortunate that in the course of researching this book, uh, AEW was created because it was a perfect way to end the book. And when I ended the book, because the book ends with um, the first uh, taping of Dynamite, it's Marco Stunt, Joey Janela. Orange Cassidy and um, I'm, and I'm blank. Uh, what? Uh, Jungle Boy, I believe, was the uh, and Jungle Boy are, are doing a, a GCW show in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and from there they are departing to uh, you know drive to the first AEW Dynamite. So wow. that's like the moment where it ends off, and I knew there would be a, a sequel because it was the beginning of something. I had no idea that COVID was about to occur, but my next book, which is uh, scheduled for sometime in 2022, I finished a few weeks back, and that is called Follow the Buzzards, uh, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. And so the sequel is now Pro Wrestling in the Time of COVID-19. But where I leave it off is, you know, at, at the beginning of 2020, people thought, this is going to be the best year to be a wrestling fan. And That's now looking back on it, even with COVID-19, maybe we are in the best era to be a wrestling fan, at least, you know, in a generation. So, uh, Keith, this, is, this may sound like an odd question, but I think you may have in, uh, kind of answered this already, sort of, but what exactly would be the definition of an indie wrestler? Is it just somebody who's not signed, who has a full-time contract, or is it someone who's... It's, it's a great question. It's a great question, and it's a question that's very hard to answer. So um, it, it, very early in the book, Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, I explain that for the sake of um, ease, I'm going to define anything other than WWE in North America. I said much the same way as a Jehovah's Witness, a Seventh-day Adventist, a Baptist and a Roman Catholic 
would all be considered Christians. Anything, you know, PWG, Ring of Honor, all of them were considered indie. Now, I don't know if AEW would really be considered indie now, but there is certainly a fierce indie spirit in AEW. And the fact that they allow their talent to work indies regularly, and they regularly invite uh, indie stars to come in and uh, participate in matches, even if it's you know just for a few t- times, there's certainly um, an abiding love of the indies. And for a long time, I felt that WWE was expressing that love with, through NXT. Certainly Triple H, I believe, was. And... Um, you know, now obviously NXT is going through some changes. I don't know what changes we're going to see, but up until now, uh, there that indie spirit was was felt in NXT and still is. If you're watching, you know NXT show on Tuesday nights. Um, Keith, when it comes to so you talked about how when you were in New Orleans, you saw all the Bullet Club shirts. Um, uh, you know, at, at at WrestleMania, you know, before WrestleMania. What do you think the Bullet Club's impact on indie wrestling has been from your perspective? Corey and I have our own perspective, but from your perspective, from everyone that you've talked to, fans, wrestlers alike, what do you think the Bullet Club's influence is on indie wrestling uh, or today? I mean, I think that the Bullet Club, you know, set a table, set a foundation for indie wrestling to thrive because you had Bullet Club members going on indie shows. You had guys who were, you know, superstars in Japan, like Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, and then eventually Cody Rhodes. They could appear on your local indie. They could be at an indie in Northern California. Did we uh, lose, Corey? I'm here. I'm listening. Oh, okay. Uh, They could appear on an indie in Northern California. They could appear in Poughkeepsie, New York. You had Japanese talent coming over and performing in indies. So um, I think that they created a cult following. And those uh, wrestlers were, uh, you know, their, their merchandise was being sold at Hot Topic. So this was not just, you know, someone hawking T-shirts in a church basement. This was kind of big time. And um, I think it drew in a lot of fans. I think it provided an alternative to WWE. I think when some of these guys landed in NXT and eventually on the main roster, there were fans who um, went back and, and on YouTube and they saw some of these guys on, you know, on the indies and they decided to check out some of those indies. So, but I think that the Bullet Club as a unit had a major impact on indie wrestling and the evolution that led to the formation of AEW. Now, uh, you brought up a moment ago, and we spoke about this beforehand, uh, with NXT could be going through a change. How do you think that this new supposed mandate that McMahon wants guys who are like under 26 and basically look like the Hulk, to be there. How do you think that will affect? First of all, I don't know if that's what Vince McMahon wants. That's what has been reported. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't in the room when Vince McMahon said that. Uh, I haven't seen Vince McMahon or Triple H or Shawn Michaels, you know, get on a podcast and, and declare that. So that's those are the rumors that are going around. Are those rumors by credible sources? I mean, Dave Meltzer generally is a credible source, um, you know, or are they coming from guys who were recently laid off or fear that they're going to be laid off? And there's a great deal of conjecture. I'm not sure. Obviously, it would be a disappointment if the rich spirit, the soulfulness of uh, NXT was compromised in any way, because it's been incredibly exciting to be following NXT and, uh, you know, watching NXT this week, the matches were pretty good. I mean, you know, the, the, the talent is, they're, they're good talent. They, they're, there's compelling stories going into the next takeover. Now I was listening to busted open radio and they were speculating about reasons why 
uh, the NXT takeover is going to be at the Capitol Center and not some at a, an arena in Vegas, it's a little concerning if that's the direction where it's going because it's a, it's a great product and it's a product that appeals to the alternative fan. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Keith. And I, you know, uh, to Corey's point, taking rumors and stuff out of it, we don't know anything about rumors, but we do know who's been released. Like that, that's all been locked in. And I think um, as someone who's been a longtime NXT fan, uh, it really is disconcerting seeing what is the changes that that are that are happening. Um, and, you know, you've kind of eloquently put it in terms of some of the stuff that you're concerned about with with NXT. I just hope that NXT can maintain some of the indie rific vibe that it's had and it doesn't become a kind of something different let's put it let's well, put it that, that, that it, do, it doesn't turn into uh fcw the uh developmental promotion that preceded it yeah. or deep south wrestling any of and nothing wrong with those promotions by yeah. the way um you know they they, they uh, generated a great deal of excitement and some great people came up there yeah um but it was more um small scale and um you know, there was, you know, NXT is the place where Shinsuke Nakamura came out with a violinist to his theme music and where Bobby Roode would have a choir behind him. And I would hate to see that lost. So just um, one of the things that we saw last night on Dynamite was, and you could say it was because they mentioned All Out and the crowd, you know, for Chicago. But we heard, you know, the infamous CM Punk chants when they went with, you know, Omega versus Christian as the as the main event. Do you think that the return of these indie darlings, indie legends of a CM Punk and rumored Brian Danielson, do you think that will give uh, more of an interest to the indies again? What do you think? Um, I, I think you're appealing to the fan who already has fondness for the indies or at least the alternative um look there are people who are probably lapsed fans i mean cm punk's uh, pipe bomb promo was what 2011 that's 10 years ago so there are people who were 16 or 17 years old at the time and now they're 26 or 27 and they're working and they're living in different places than the place where they grew up and it could bring some of them back um, and it could inspire people to, uh, you know, keep checking out the Indies. It's certainly very exciting. And um, Daniel Bryan, I was at WrestleMania this year and Daniel Bryan certainly, even after his long sabbatical was uh, on top of his game in the ring. I don't know if he can perform at that level, you know, several times a week, but he definitely has some great matches left in him and uh you know that he's inspired and i think a guy like cm punk in the right environment where he's being nurtured and encouraged could really not only put on great shows in the ring which he was always quite good at but you know just having the freedom to go off on the promos all that stuff that's turning around in his head you know it's definitely those are definitely steps in a very positive direction for fans like ourselves. Now, I know it's basically a code word for saying that everyone's working together, but what's your thoughts on it's all that concept of, you know, the forbidden door and how that, you know, maybe helped or is hurting the Indies where you saw like a guy like a war horse and- Oh, other- it helps. I mean, my next book, War Horse, is in my upcoming book. And I was at a show last summer, uh, Warrior Wrestling, which is a great promotion out of Chicago, both in terms of the, the match quality and in terms of the cause, it's run by a principal at uh, a, a Catholic school called Marion Catholic outside, outside of Chicago. And the principal is a lifetime fan and the promoter. And that money is used to give scholarships to largely underprivileged youth to attend this very elite school in a pretty troubled uh, section of Illinois. Um, so it's a wonderful, inspiring atmosphere. 
and Warhorse was there. And, uh, you know, th the fans were really into him because he had recently appeared in a in AEW. And, um, you know, it gave him, it's not like AEW is poaching these guys and keeping them away from the indies. I mean, in my new book, Joey Janela talks to me about how, you know, he's performing indies every week and he wants to create uh, storylines at specific indies that he can continue when he circles around to those indies. You know, I was talking to an indie in Arkansas and they were telling me about one talent who wants to uh, come down there, you know, several shows in a row and create a real plot line like in the territory days, you know? So, um, you know, opening up all these doors and not blocking them, I think is good for the indies because these guys come back to the indies rejuvenated and you're going to draw some fans who saw you on national television. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, now you could see, I mean, Leo Rush, who was released by the WWE, in one week he was on New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, MLW. The next week he was on AEW. I mean, these guys right, are, and I are saw him. I saw him wrestle in GCW, you know, after he was released for WWE. And I saw him WrestleMania weekend. I mean, you know, that's a great talent. I mean, I hope the rumors about his retirement are premature because I think he has a lot to contribute still absolutely. to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you've been talking about, is there a favorite story you have from talking to either a wrestler or a fan from the book? Um, that you'd like to share? It could be about uh, just just any story that you could. I think mean, about. I'll, I'll tell you a, a story. You know, wrestling. Look, it's a cliche, but wrestling does attract a certain type of person who may not fit in with the rest of the world, and myself included. Not just myself, myself especially. And I, I when I was driving today, when I was. I was live in New York and I was driving down to Maryland and I was listening to uh, Chris Jericho's podcast with Malachi Black. And he talks about that, how he never quite fit in. And so, um, you know, in, in the indie world, there were people who were fans who got into indie wrestling, either as wrestlers or promoters or guys setting up chairs. And this one guy, David Fuller, who runs a group in, uh, in Texas, he was 15 years old. His mother had just died. He felt, you know, pretty depressed. And he gathered together with other wrestling fans who felt out of sort. And they got some guy to give him a ring, basically. And they paid a couple of hundred bucks for it. And they put it in his friend's backyard and the guy who owned the ring I guess didn't want to pay for storage he said just leave it there for your next show so they were paying guys like 25 30 bucks and they were 15 year old kids so they were doing things that were inconceivable and dangerous you know people were coming to the ring with chainsaws and then they'd leave it there and the chainsaw would stay on and you know Imagine how your brain worked when you were 15. So David Fuller said, you know, and you go to a WWE show and they say, don't throw anything at the ring. And at their show, they get in the ring, they go, do whatever you want. So, you know, it was just completely unstructured. And, um, you know, there's a, you know, it's almost like committing an act of vandalism. And Certainly, there is something extremely subversive about pro wrestling. And, you know, on the indies, a lot of guys have embraced it. Now, I said this when I was first promoting uh, Too Sweet after the book came out in September. Um, what has happened in recent years because of the prevalence of social media is a very positive thing. Wrestlers and fans communicate with each other. And what has, and so you have more credible indie promoters than in the past. You know, long, I'm not saying these days are over, but it's a lot harder to rip off the talent and, 
and you know lure somebody to your show and not pay their airfare and only give them a quarter of what you promised them because you will be exposed for doing that. And because the boundaries between wrestlers and fans have broken down, kayfabe is broken down, wrestlers are not afraid to talk to fans who might be knowledgeable. And fans can tell wrestlers, hey, this guy in Davenport, Iowa, runs some pretty good shows and there's some great talent there. And this is who was on the show. It's like, oh, I'll text him and see what he thought. And, you know, again, that's very good for the indies. It's very good for wrestling, you know, and it's good for humanity because people shouldn't be ripped off, whether they're wrestlers or whether they're sanitation workers. So one of the things that uh, friends of mine, I'm sure friends of Jay, maybe even yours, have said, you know, why are you a fan of why are you a fan of wrestling? And I just turned 43. Jay just turned 42 this week. What, what's kept you interested in wrestling in all these years where they usually say wrestling's for kids, people grow out of it once, you know, boys find out what girls, you know, start liking girls and everything. Yes, that's true. In wrestling all these years. I mean, and look, there was certainly a period where I uh, backslid, and I think every wrestling fan has that story. And it was around the time I, you know, discovered that if I asked a girl on a date, she might say yes. So there was something to do besides uh, feeling miserable and cursing all the girls who wouldn't go out with me and watching wrestling, you know? Um, I still and, have that. But, but uh, you know, uh, what has kept me interested? First of all, I write about it. So it's a lot easier to maintain the interest when you're, you know, your livelihood is tied into it. And, Sometimes I'm really glad about that because it's forced me to watch wrestling during periods when I might not have, when I might have been fed up with the way a certain storyline went. Um, uh, so that, but also it's those moments. And, you know, being in WrestleMania was one of those moments and hearing the crowd explode for the main event, uh, seeing Bianca Belair win the title. Uh, you know, seeing Nick Gage and Chris Jericho carve each other up on, um, on, on AEW, on network television, and reading about the controversy with Domino's the next day. It's fun, and it's fun to talk about. And I've been fortunate that I've found a group of friends in adulthood who like wrestling the way we do. And so they're not uh, people who are unstable and talk about, oh, I bet he's going to win the gold this weekend. And look, I talk to those people too, because they support wrestling and they might have limitations and it's still an outlet for them like it is for me. But we can analyze wrestling together. These are smart people who I respect, who love wrestling and are not ashamed of loving wrestling. And, um, you know, when you're, you know, uh, in an environment where you're not broadcasting your opinions, you can speculate, you can fantasy book, you can t talk about, mark out on your favorite angles that you've ever I mean, seen. Keith, we do that anyway. I know. But <laughs> it's a community. It's a community of people who understand us. And it's we're all in this for the same reason. There's something... It's like people who love comic books. It's like people who love video games. It appeals to a side of us that we needed to help function in the world. And it still does. So uh, you, you brought it up. You've been writing about wrestling for pretty much all of your adult life. One of the, one of the places you worked for, for I, I believe around like 20, 20, uh, 20 plus years, was the WWF magazine. I did, how yes. Did that, how did that come about? And do you have any interesting stories? Regards oh, I have a ton of interesting yeah. stories. Some I can even say on the record, you know. <laughs> but but um, it came about, I was writing about wrestling very, I, I started out as a professional writer at age 19. And I'd write for anybody, as long as I got paid. And it didn't matter if, if how much I got paid. It's a lot like being an indie wrestler. As long as I receive some type of payoff, it's like, hey, I'm doing what I love to do. Uh, so... Early on in my career, I realized that I knew about a topic very few others knew about the same way. 
I knew about professional wrestling. So I started freelancing and writing about professional wrestling. And this is several years before the Rock and Wrestling Connection, the first WrestleMania. When the Rock and Wrestling Connection occurred, suddenly people wanted me to write articles for them because I knew about this world anyway. And I ended up doing a story for Us Weekly at the first WrestleMania. And when I was at the first WrestleMania, I was sitting with Ed Rusciutti, who was the editor of the WWF magazine and is still a dear friend. He was about, you know, 20 years older than me or 20 plus years older than me. And um, he, had, he was an interesting guy. You know, he had traveled internationally. He had covered, you know, uh, uh, poaching in Africa. He had done stories in Iran. You know, he was a real like journalist and man of the world. And we connected and he understood, even though he didn't grow up as a wrestling fan, he had been a boxer at Notre Dame. He understood the allure of combat sports and he understood intellectually the appeal of professional wrestling and why these people were here. And um, he said, you know, you should really, you've been freelancing writing about it anyway. You should start writing for us. I said, okay. So he arranged to put me on a monthly retainer. I never worked there full time, but I was on a monthly retainer. And I remember the first time Vince McMahon saw me backstage, he ran over to Ed Rusciutti and said, what, what's he doing here? He writes for other people. You know, he's going to expose our thing. I don't know if he said that. That's what I imagined the conversation to be. And I heard Ed saying he's working for us now. And Vince going, OK. And, you know, so. It was not a bad environment to be in. And, you know, it was nice to be playing for the winning team for once, uh, you know, be, viewing myself as an outsider. Uh, you know, Vince was thriving. And even though a lot of people hated Vince, you know, I was around as WWF was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And people who'd never watched wrestling were giving it a chance and enjoying it and seeing some of the things that we saw. So it was really exhilarating to be around the business at that time. And then I stuck with them for 22 years through positives and negatives, through boom periods and slow periods. I remember during the Attitude Era having a chat with Tim White, the referee. And, you know, he's like, look at these employees at WWE, they, you know, WWF, they, you know, they think, you know, it's going to be a boom period forever. Because wait till the come down happens, you know, they'll, they'll be shattered. You know, so we understood that the wrestling business was cyclical. And then, um, you know, I ended up, I co-wrote Freddie Blassie's book. I co-wrote Ric Flair's book. I co-wrote superstar Billy Graham's book. And um, then after that, um, the publisher left and um, a new publisher came in. And by this point, every year they gave me a raise, like I would get a monthly retainer and they would raise it every year. And I thought, you know, they're, they're kind of paying me too much, but I'm not going to alert them to that. But at some point, someone from the outside is going to come in and make a point of that. And sure enough, a new publisher came in and we had a phone conversation. And he said, look, I've never met you once. I've never seen you in the office once. You write for the magazine. I know some people like you, some people don't. But I can't, you know, it doesn't make financial sense for me to pay you this kind of money every month. I could get two guys right out of college, pay them virtually the same thing. And I can have them in the office doing clerical tasks that you think you're too good to do. I said, fair enough. Every, you know, nothing lasts forever. And he said, I'll still throw you freelance. And he did, not a ton of it. We did, and WWE did, and I still talk to WWE. So we never broke up. We never had a falling out. The good news is I always had other clients. I worked full-time as a TV producer. And so, um, you know, wrestling never really goes away. There were periods where I thought I wasn't going to write about it as much. And then other things come up, and I've been doing these books, and during COVID, Inside the Ropes magazine was created, and I write a monthly column for them. 
And that also has uh, helped uh, fortify my love of wrestling. And so, you know, it's, I'm lucky that pro wrestling came into my life. I think I'd be uh, less happy as a human being if pro wrestling didn't exist or if it went out of business like the roller derby. Yeah, you're career has been really, really interesting and spanned decades and years. Um, and the Vince stuff, I find to be very, very interesting. You had a, uh, one interview where you said Vince kind of knew everything that was going on with he everybody. Did, yeah. Right. I and I'm, like, I, I mean, I, I haven't been around Vince in a long time, but he knew, he knew if somebody threw a beer at the ring and it splattered on the barricade, and a guy wiped down the barricade with a rag. I've seen Vince go, that was great. That, that, that beer was casting a sheen and you were right on top of it. You know, there's all these stories about bad Mr. McMahon. I've seen Mr. McMahon be nice Mr. McMahon, single out people and compliment them. But he knew, he was watching everything. And I, I, this might've been the same interview. My friend Cage Nakayama, who was one of the Japanese photographers for years. He, he moved back to Japan, but he was, you know, wrote for one who uh, was a photographer for weekly Japanese magazine. And um, we were in Las Vegas and Cage decided to bring a girlfriend to the show. And she was sitting in the stands. And when they were done, he decided to walk through the dressing room with this girlfriend to where he had his car parked. And Vince McMahon was backstage and he was talking to a group of people and he looked over at Cage and he looked at his girlfriend and he looked back at Cage as if to say, well, you're bringing girls backstage now? He knew, he knew exactly what was happening and Cage didn't even work for him. But that's how tuned in he was to his environment. Yeah, and then, um... And kind of bringing this to a little bit of a negative uh, spin here with the Too Sweet book is, you know, the speaking out allegations that came out, was it last year? Mm-hmm. Last year, right? I'm, I'm so yes. confused. Uh, yeah, COVID, yeah. The, the COVID was, year, right? Like was what was your... Because yeah, it's, in so, my, it's in my next book. Yeah. So what it's was your, you know, okay. And so what's been your take on the speaking out movement i'll kind of just give you uh you know open forum to kind of talk about whatever you want to talk about just from your exposure to all these wrestlers yes this leads into my next book um when i finished the book and you know in uh, numerous people who were singled out during the speaking out movement are in too sweet and that's been point that's pointed out to me regularly uh, including joey ryan who was very nice and very insightful now that's not and um, David Starr. Um, yeah, David Starr, basically a month before all these allegations came out. Right. I mean, yeah, how, how would you know? And I still don't know everything, um, or I don't know anything because I wasn't there. But when the book was about to come out, everything had been edited, but it was um, it was we could still change photos and. Michael Holmes, the executive editor, and I had a, had a discussion about what do we do? And I'm like, these people all have played a major role in the evolution of indie wrestling. We can't remove them from history. You can't say that Chris Benoit didn't wear the WCW and WWF titles or that he wasn't Pegasus Kid in Japan and that he didn't influence people. If you're writing a history of pro wrestling, Chris Benoit belongs in that history. And that, I, I, that was my position, and I don't regret that position. Now, when the book came out, there were people who quite um, reasonably said, yeah, kind of put me in a bad mood to see all these people who've been, you know, uh, you know canceled or pointed out as being predators. And... Um, I'm like, okay. And they said, and there wasn't enough emphasis on women in the industry. And I'm like, okay, well, speaking out is going to be in my next book. And there's going to be a lot more about women in the industry. Some ways it's unavoidable because the women's movement has gotten bigger and bigger too. Um, So uh, here's the approach I took. 
I, um, I have a chapter on speaking out. I've opted not to name any of the female accusers. And that comes from, in my other life, doing a lot of true crime. And uh, special victims detectives do not name victims. And whether you think these women are victims or whether you think they're gold diggers or whether you think they're making it up, I don't want to risk that and leave them, subject them to scorn because maybe they're telling the truth. And, and you know, maybe most of them are telling the truth. And I don't want anyone having their names and a book coming out two years, three years after, you know, they've been in the spotlight and people starting to harass them again. So I've left them out of the, their names out of the book, but I have detailed some of the accusations. What I have also done is I have only named the male wrestlers who um, were the most high profile and defended themselves the most vehemently. So David Starr did defend himself. He is in the book. Joey Ryan defended himself, disappeared from social media, returned to social media, was involved in promoting a charity show and had to back out. He's in the book. Marty Skrull uh, was, was accused of having sex with somebody who was over the age of consent in the UK, but was still quite young. He defended himself online. That is in the book. Matt Riddle, I do not name Matt Riddle's accuser, but that became a very high profile case everything was eventually dropped. I don't name his accuser, but I describe the circumstances and that is in the book. And most importantly, I quote numerous women in the wrestling business because they know better than I. And they said, this has been going on forever. And, you know, every woman has been hit on and not just hit on, but been put in an uncomfortable position. And fortunately these days, one of the women said, there are men in the business who will support you and back you up. And if someone's giving you a hard time, you're not off on your own. And um, so I worked very hard to include the female perspective in the book. And I hope that when people read it, they understand why I omitted certain names. Now, with some of the male wrestlers, there were accusations leveled and then, you know, I didn't hear about it anymore. I don't want every guy um, to be scared that, oh my God, like someone accused me of something and now it's in a book forever. So that's why I didn't name every single person who was accused. That, make, that makes total sense. Uh, what you just mentioned, the fact that you that you work in your real, in, in your regular job, uh, you know, true crime and some of the, the books you've read, are, have been, you know, autobiographies and books on true crime. What's the difference of either the research-wise or just going through writing on a subject that's wrestling versus a true crime or, you know... Uh, I, I, I conduct myself the same way, journalistically. You know, you're trying to inform people and give people perspective. And so if you're doing a true crime book, you... Put, put yourself in the minds of the investigators, in the minds of the victims. You know, you interview victims' families and you want people to feel what they feel, uh, what they felt sitting in court, just like you want people to feel what the wrestler felt debuting at AEW or, you know, working his or her first indie match or, or feeling, if it's a woman, feeling that she had no recourse when she was being sexually harassed. You know, we're, we're, tell we're storytellers. Um, so I have two questions left. Uh, thank you so much for all the time that you've given us. Um, of course, I knew what I knew. I like I, I wanted to get out of here. But once I started talking with you guys, it's like oh, I'm talking. Wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, OK, what is your um, favorite book that you've written, whether it's, you know, about maybe about a specific person 
whatever. So what's your favorite? Let's stick to wrestling. Actually, well, wrestling, do, I'm going uh, to do say a wrestling, a wrestling book and then a non-wrestling book that you've okay. written. Okay. So my, I'm going to stick, I'm going to say my favorite book that I've written is, okay, the, my, next wrestling, my next wrestling book on wrestling during the time of COVID-19, that's going to be a good book. So I'll say that. And it's called Follow the Buzzards, which is a term the recently departed Bray Wyatt would use. But I thought there was something very um, symbolic about that term because it's COVID-19, follow the buzzards, like death and gloom are all around us. But follow it, see where it, where it leads to. And we still don't know where it's all going to lead. So I'm going to say that right now. And of my non-wrestling books, um, you know, Look, there's others I'm very fond of right now. The top of my head, the book I wrote about the death of John Lennon, would a lot of people really like that book. They mention it to me quite often. So uh, that's called December 8, 1980, the day John Lennon died. And you can pick that up on Amazon too. Um, and then my last question is writing the book about COVID, Follow the Buzzards. What was the process like for that book? Because, you know, with your too sweet book about indie wrestling, you were able to be backstage all the time and talk to guys all the time. And obviously the age of COVID, not so much. So what was your process like for writing that book? Well, it, it, it was challenging in different ways. Um, now I did end up going to outdoor indie shows. You know, GCW had several shows. Uh, Warrior Wrestling had several shows. This is before anyone was even vaccinated. Um, you know, there was a, a guy out in San Diego who calls himself Dirty Ron McDonald, who put on drive-in shows. I interviewed him. Um, you know, I was given people's numbers. People were home. People were around. Uh, you know, at some of these indie shows, I got to talk to some of the AEW guys. Uh, so I did receive, you know, I was a WrestleMania. WrestleMania's in the book. I went to the first AEW roadshow in Miami. I spoke to Sammy Guevara. So I was able to, to get access to people. There were there are these twins out of Kansas City, just a really great uh, athletic team, the Regal Twins. Um, and they got separated on opposite sides of the Atlantic when COVID hit. One was visiting his girlfriend in England. And, you know, they were just, the gyms were closed, you know? so. He just stayed in England and was working out at home. And the other guy was working out at home. And then the gyms opened up and he was working as a personal trainer. So everybody had stories and everybody told me how they dealt with COVID-19 and how they trained and what went through their minds. I mean, Trey Miguel in, in Impact, uh, he told me that he spent a lot of time looking at tapes of himself and you know, pondering how he could improve. And, uh, you know, when he performed on impact shows, he would have to now feed to the camera as opposed to, to the guy in the first row because there was no guy in the first row. So I, I, I did get these insights. And, you know, with uh, social media being what it is, people do interviews and podcasts and their insights are included. I quote the sources, but I'm not going to ignore interesting insights that came from shows like yours. So that's all in the book. And it's quite a chronicle of the time that we're still living through. Absolutely. Um, as we, as we uh, get ready to end uh, this great interview, and thank you for all of your time, Keith. What are you watching? Uh, I know you have to watch everything, especially if you're uh, reporting on it. But what do you like right now? Is there like a wrestler that's on the indies that you that you found out from the book? you know, from doing it that really like impressed you? Is there someone that we're going to see in PWG coming up that you think is the next? Yeah, I, I, I didn't go to that. The, I, I wanted to go to the PWG show, but I, I wasn't in LA and I wasn't able to get out there. Um, you know, I, I, I will say if you go to a GCW show, the Game Changer Wrestling out of Jersey, I mean, they've been during COVID, they've been in Wyoming, they've been in LA, they were just in LA. You know, um, Amb um, not Ambrose, Moxley shows up there and Matt Cardona just won their title from Nick Gage. And, you know, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on there. 
And, um, you know, if, if somebody wants to check out an interesting indie, I, I'd say check out GCW. And I guess my other question would be here, and as someone who writes about it, what have, what have your thoughts, if you had a chance to see any of the documentaries that, you know, Viceland has done, you know, either The Wrestler or, you know, um, Dark Side of the Ring? Do you think those have been an accurate portrayal? Do you think they're showing too I much? Mean, I, I think that, I mean, look, the wrestlers who were involved in those situations, by and large, um, you know, say as a, as a rule, those were accurate portrayals, um, you know, and I actually feel that Dark Side of the Ring was one of, uh, you know, vices, I'll use the word because it's on vice, but it was a vice that wrestling fans were able to indulge themselves in. And I met people who were lapsed fans who watched some of those Dark Sides of the Ring, and I think it helped add to the whole pro allure of pro wrestling and established for people who might've rolled their eyes when wrestling came up, that this, this, these are serious people and these are serious stories and it's not a cartoon show. Very cool. And once again, Keith, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you can check out all of the great work of Keith Greenberg, Inside the Rope Magazine monthly. And also you can check out his books. You can check them out on Amazon.com. Uh, do you have any other places that you would like to plug, either Twitter or anything else at this time? I mean, I'm on I'm on um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Although you know the numbers of Facebook friends are you know multiplying. At some point, I might hit that the, you know the limit. But I still you know I, there's still a few hundred slots open if people want to friend me on Facebook, as long as I don't get insane rambling, you know, met, you know, messages, I'm, I'm fine. And like I said before, be sure to check out all of uh, Keith's work. And Keith, when you come out with uh, the new book, you know, we'll love to have you on again. And it's been an I'll be back. If you invite me, I'll be back. Oh, Jay? Oh, Keith, one last, Keith, one last thing. Um, so your new, your book, that's going to come out next year. Follow the buzzards. Obviously that's the Bray Wyatt thing. And he was released recently. What do you see his future as? Where do you think he ends up? I mean, now I, I I'm just going to lapse into being a Mark. Head of the dark <laughs> order. No, I, I don't have any information on that, you know, but yeah, I'd love to see him come out and be head of the dark order. You know, maybe I'd love to see him come out of Ring of Honor and get some interest over there. Maybe I'd like to see him suddenly come out of the middle of the ring in the Tokyo Dome against Okada. I mean, I don't know, but I think he's a great talent. And I think he's a fertile, he has a fertile wrestling mind. And, you know, he has the genes and not just to wrestle, but to understand the business. I mean, we certainly haven't seen the last of him. Absolutely. And Jay, I was going to throw this the first time. We'll try this again. Once again, be sure to check out Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution by our guest, Keith Elliott Greenberg. And Jay, as always, the final word is yours. I think we're done here. See ya.